Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of the audio magazine, My Quest for the Best, where we meet business, thought, and community leaders to discuss issues relevant to entrepreneurial growth. Joining us today is Melinda Blau. Melinda is a journalist who has been researching and reporting about relationships and social trends since the 70s. Her most recent book is Consequential Strangers, The Power of People Who Don't Seem to Matter But Really Do. It explores the vast and unsung array of everyday people both on and off the Internet who have a profound impact on our business, success, and health. Melinda is the voice of Consequential Strangers blog and has written more than 90 magazine pieces and a dozen other books, including the best-selling Baby Whisperer series. She also blogs for Psychology Today and more magazines and writes a bi-monthly column for Shareable. Melinda is a mother and a grandmother and the co-founder of Mother You, a website for contemporary women of both generations. Welcome, Melinda. Hi. Thank you, Bill. Nice to be here. Linda, tell us, how do you define consequential strangers, and why do they matter? Okay, well, consequential strangers, simply put, are everyone outside of your family and close friends. And it's a huge group of people, including everyone from your dry cleaner to your mailman to someone that you might play tennis with once a week to a yoga partner. They're generally people that are on the periphery of your life. They're very important. There's a wealth of research that shows how important it is to your health to have people other than your loved ones to turn to because you also get a lot of information from them that you don't get from your loved ones because your loved ones tend to know what you know and they think the way you think, whereas consequential strangers are often of a different uh, socioeconomic group, a different ethnicity. They have different life experiences and... So if you have a problem, for example, and you talk to your a guy you know from the gym, who that's the only place you actually see him, he might say something that really sparks a whole new idea that you didn't think of and that your your spouse wouldn't have thought of either, assuming that you're married. It's been shown, for example, in businesses, the people who do the best are people who have relationships not only in that industry but also in related industries. And there has been incredible research that shows that consequential strangers or having a variety of people in your life is almost as good as education in terms of moving up the ladder of success. And that sounds kind of counterintuitive, like what's the big deal if, you know, you say hello to your janitor or you have an accountant. The fact is that all the the various range of people in your life, again, gives you different perspective and also different information. So it's quite counterintuitive sometimes to say, oh, these are really important people because we tend to measure importance by closeness. But it's not just about closeness. Closeness can be you see them a lot, um, you know, do you sleep with them? But there's other barometers and the idea of having a relationship, even though it's a sometime relationship or it's located in a specific place, that relationship is very meaningful. It doesn't matter whether it's close or not, it's still meaningful. The book argues, not only presents the research, shows why, it also argues that it's really important to cultivate those relationships and to, to cherish them and to look at the wider social landscape because it really is rich with resources point you made earlier makes perfect sense to me. And I, I look at entrepreneurs in particular who didn't have good educations and might even have had learning disabilities. Right. And I think of people like Richard Branson who overcame dyslexia and built many successful businesses. 
And one of the ways that he does that is by relying on people and bringing people in from a variety of different industries, social backgrounds, etc., in order to manage and help him run his companies. That's absolutely true. There's a lot of research on that as well. And, you know, if you scratch the surface of any successful product, you'll see a team effort behind it, not one person. You know, and, and it's almost impossible nowadays to even create on your own. And it's not a good idea, actually. So the person who knows how to use other people as resources and who puts faith in them and trusts them and is, you know, Branson is a perfect example of somebody who's he's a catalyst and he's a connector. And I think, as I say, if you look at any great enterprise or product, I'm thinking of, I never know how to pronounce his name, Tony Sweet, H-S-U-I-N, who did Zapato. It's that book. book. Yeah, Zappos, uh, Buying Happiness, um, Selling Happiness, I think is the name of his book. And and he, again, he also made his employees a part of the venture. He listened to them, he respected them, and he he got a kind of loyalty that you don't get if you just have this kind of hierarchical approach. And in the book, I talk about the invention of the Swiffer, which was done at a time that Procter & Gamble was really hurting, and it was just everybody was saying it was down for the count. And they started a different approach because they remembered back to the days when Procter & Gamble was a much smaller company, and people would meet in the lunchroom, and they would discuss different ideas. So you'd have somebody at the table who was working in the food division and someone else who was working in the soap suds division, and they that's how cake mixes were <laughs> were invented. You know, they, they got the two technologies together. And in the same way, they said, well, we, we don't have the old lunchroom anymore because now it's a huge company. But they started a, a, a sort of a division within the company where they could allow this cross-fertilization of divisions to happen. And Swiffer was the result of people who worked with within the diaper division and knew how these different the value of different materials and people who knew the cleansers. Because they said, there's got to be a better way to mop, because everyone hates to mop a floor. And they came up with Swiffer, which they ended up calling, you know, a diaper on a stick, because it was the same kind of absorbent material. And they are better off going with Swiffer than diaper on a stick for their Yeah, exactly. well, actually, they had a whole other name for it. I'm not going to say it on the radio. <laughs> You'll have to read the book for that. <laughs> got it. So what did they do in order to promote that cross-fertilization? If the, the well, company had become so big, what change did they make? Well, what change did they made? They had a division within the company, and anybody could make suggestions. You could, you could be working as a janitor in the building, and you could make suggestions. So they, they flung open the doors of the executive suite in a way, and they stopped being as hierarchical and opened it up within the company, internets, they opened up the communication in the company. And they also threatened a little bit. They said, you don't come up with some new things, we're going to close this division because we haven't made a new product in years. And I think that was the solvent department. You know, the, the last great thing they had done was Mr. Clean. That was decades ago. And it was a great company, and they tried to reclaim their greatness by going back to the people. And interestingly, I blogged about GM when it was having so much trouble, and now we're going back a couple of years. And one of the things that GM did wrong was the executives had no knowledge of the suppliers, of the rank-and-file workers. 
they went into their ivory tower and rode the elevator to the whatever 27th floor and they didn't they lost touch with the whole company and so that was just the opposite of what P&G did and i imagine in their reorganization well i actually wrote a little bit about that too they recognized that and um you cannot run a company today without staying in touch especially because now people expect it the internet has changed our expectation about connection and it is easy to write an email to the president he may not you know answer every one of them but you know you can do that and 10 years ago you couldn't do that so i think our expectations have changed and with it our relationships have changed let's talk a moment for about that because it's not just expectations but you also need to develop some skills in order to reach out to people effectively because Absolutely. i'm thinking about people who are in business in companies like this as well as thriving uh, growth companies and there are differences between the skill sets they have and the approach they take and com- people who are in companies that are stagnant and flat a lot like Procter and Gamble was before they got excited about creating this cross-fertilization process. I, I've written a lot about the skills, and I think the skills are the same for a businessman as they are for you know a housewife trying to manage three kids and running a house. One thing is to, to really look for people who are different from you, to value difference. A lot of us don't. You know, We go about our day, and we have a sort of circumscribed route, and we stay in our comfort zone. And while that's comfortable, it doesn't really add a lot of novelty to your life, and it doesn't help you grow a lot. So one thing I always tell people is to value difference. And the second thing is is to be open to, to a way of thinking that's different from yours. I mean, we tend to cut people off or tune them out when they're saying something that doesn't fit with our way of thinking. I mean, there have been psychological studies that show that. But we also can listen differently. We can learn how to do that. It's not a human failing that we can't listen. It's just a bad habit. And then the last thing I always say to people, there's always some common ground. So you might be talking to someone who is from a different country or has a totally different background. Let's say you both like the Knicks or you both have children or you know, you, you meet at a, um, a softball game. You have nothing else in common except that softball game, but that's enough to start a basis of, oh, there is some place we agree, some common ground that we stand on, and that's really, really important. And I think in business, it's always important. The other thing is also to put relationships first before anything else. You know, there's a lot of people now that are trying to use social media, for example, and, and I say this because I made the same mistake myself, which was kind of ironic having done a book like this. But, you know, people, when they first started using Twitter and Facebook, and everybody says, you've got to use social media. You have, to, you have to get to know your customers. The truth is you really do have to make personal connections. And it's time-consuming, but it's very rewarding. And you get feedback that you wouldn't ordinarily get, and you get loyalty that you don't ordinarily get. If it's just a customer, distant customer service provider or product provider relationship, it's a very, very different kind of relationship and a, and a better one for both people. So, what's an example of an individual or a company that's embraced this and is doing it well? 
Well, I mentioned Zappos is one. I haven't read the book yet, but I think probably Steve Jobs knew this. And, you know, you go into the Apple stores and you can see that those, um, well, the customers too, and I'm not an Apple person, but um, you, you go into the stores and there's some, it's, it's all an extension of Steve Jobs. It's like there's a loyalty there. There's a sense that we want, yes, we want to sell you this product, but we, we really want to know who you are. And I think a lot of the new successful companies, if you look at that, you know, you'll see that kind of real, it's genuine, it's not fake. That's the big difference. The people who have done it well, and I don't know if, if your listeners are aware of, there's a guy named Gary Vaynerchuk who billed himself as the wine guy. Do you know him? I do. Okay. Well, Gary is somebody who has made a huge success He's written a book, Crush It, about how to use the Internet. But the real success of Gary is because of his personality and because he was willing to really answer every email, answer every tweet. Really, he remembered the guys. He remembered if they said they liked the Jets. And, you know, he made personal connections with them. And I think that's very time-consuming, but that's what made him a success. And he's now, you know, a consultant to very big media companies, not media companies, big companies who want to understand social media, but they have to know that the personal connection is what makes the success. Because I interviewed Gary, and I was really, I was taken with, he was just a very genuine guy. So you've researched a lot of companies and individuals who have done this. Was there a moment in your life where you suddenly realized that this was a phenomenon, this was an event happening at this period in time where it suddenly makes sense to write a book? There were actually two. way earlier event happened 10 years before I, I uh, actually wrote the book, which was when I moved up to Northampton, Massachusetts from New York. And it was at that moment that I realized that a whole, I didn't know the word consequential strangers then, but I realized that a whole level of acquaintances had dropped out of my life. You know, the people that in stores, in my neighborhood, because, you know, I lived in the West Village, which is a very, of Manhattan, and it's a very kind of neighborhood place. You know, you know the stores, you go in, they know what you like. You know, you go into the green grocery, and she says to me, oh, I have those Concord grapes that I know you love. They just came in. When I moved, all of that left, including people that I might go out to brunch with but wouldn't invite up for a weekend. And they were all my consequential strangers. I called them acquaintances, which is a, it's a, a very fair um, synonym for consequential strangers. And in order to make Northampton feel like home, I went on what I call my acquaintanceship campaign. But I, I, I didn't need any more friends. I had lots of friends, and I spoke to them on the phone. This was the days before the Internet. And I invited them up for the weekend. So my good friends were still my good friends, but my acquaintances were all gone. So I went on my acquaintanceship campaign, and any time I interviewed somebody who was from the area, I, instead of doing it over the phone, as I often did, I'd said, can we meet for coffee? If there was an interesting article in the newspaper about someone that seemed like an interesting person to know, I'd call up, and I would say, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I just moved up to the area. I saw what you wrote, uh, what you, the story about you in the paper, and would you like to have coffee sometime? I don't know anybody up here. And, of course, it was in a way, easy for me because I had the, you know, the the cloak of being a journalist, so I could make the call a little bit more easily than probably someone else making it. Plus, the fact it is kind of my personality. So eventually, that way, I got to meet people. 
Well, now cut to many years later when I met Karen Fingerman, who is a psychologist. At the time, she was at the University, Purdue University. Now she's at the University of Texas at Austin. And she sent me a paper, and it was called Consequential Strangers Across the Lifespan. It was just, the term was just used in the heading. It was not used in the body of the piece at all. And I read the piece. I said, oh, my God. That's what I lost, my consequential strangers. And this was a time, this was around 2006, and social media was really just starting then. Facebook was maybe a year old at that point or two years old. The vast majority of people had no idea that social media was even happening. And I knew that there was something, if, if consequential strangers were important in a world without an Internet, it was going to become even more important. And certainly life has proven me correct. <laughs> you know, we now have way more consequential strangers than we ever could have in the past. And they are not necessarily close. And even if we just know them online, I've gotten into a lot of debates with people about this. Even if we just know them online, it's someone that you can contact. You know, you mention, you, they mention a book one time that they read, and you might contact them on Facebook and say, you know, mention that book. Was there such and such in it? Or why did you like it so much? Or you went, I heard that you went to Zanzibar. <laughs> you know, all of these things are available to us. It's almost overwhelming now. But the fact is we have more consequential strangers than ever. So I think the timing was really perfect. It really does seem to blur the line between our online contacts and our offline contacts. There are so many ways that we have Internet connectivity with us, with our smartphones and iPhones. Um, it just makes it so much easier to stay in contact with people wherever we go. Absolutely. And you know, the thing is that research shows that most of our online contacts, and it depends on which medium you're using, whether you're talking about your smartphone or you know, your iPad, and, and it's, it's, it's getting even more complicated to even analyze it because there are so many ways to connect. But we do know the vast majority of people that we email with, for example. Most of them, you know, some of them are people we've never actually met face-to-face, -face, but we know them on some level. We're not dealing with strangers. And, we know them through uh, acquaintanceship and following what they're exactly. posting on Twitter and LinkedIn. Exactly. And... You know, I actually saw, um, I recently posted about this on Facebook. It interests me constantly to see how the social landscape is changing. So this woman wrote about what a wonderful, welcoming, supportive community of musicians she was part of. And I didn't have to know anything about the group, but what I was struck by is like, okay, there were, there's always been groups of mus musicians in communities that have gotten together, you know, probably from... Who knows when? I mean, musicians have always found each other. People of like interests have always found each other. There have always been organizations like the Elks or the, the Daughters of the American Revolution where people with similar values have found each other. But what's different today is because you can carry on those contacts both on and offline, you get to know these people in a much different and I dare say deeper way because you know more about them. You know, you read their Facebook posts and you know that they have grandchildren, which might not come up at a meeting when you just see them for an hour a week. But you get to see a broader, broader picture. And I, th I think that's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. With people sharing information like that online, it also contributes to being able to organize offline. 
Right. You know, for whatever reason, whether they're getting together to form a band or getting together to protest the social issue. Exactly, and there's a tremendous amount of that. I mean, I wrote the, the book was written between 2006 and 2009, and it, one of the things I wrote about in the book was Meetup, and just it's so interesting when I first discovered Meetup. I think there were a thousand Meetup groups, and now there's probably eight thousand maybe more. I haven't looked at it lately. I think by the time the book went to press, there were 4,500, 5,000 groups. And Meetup is a perfect example of this online, offline connection. And it was started, among other people, by Scott Heffernan, who after 9-11, he was in New York during that time, and he so enjoyed the community and the people kind of getting together. And New York City is to people outside of New York, they may not believe this, but it's one of the warmest cities in the world. New Yorkers will talk to anyone. And it's the best place to be in a tragedy or a catastrophe. I've been there in blackouts. I've been there in, I mean, that's where I'm originally from. I've been there in snowstorms. Anybody will pick anybody up when they're stranded. And, and I wasn't there in 9-11, but people who were there were struck by just how wonderful everyone was. And he said, there must be a way to use the Internet to capture that sense of community, and that's what really started. That's where he came up with the idea of, of Meetup, where you would use an online venue to find people of similar interests, whether it was Cajun cuisine or chihuahuas, and say, okay, we all live in an area close to New York City. Do you want to meet? And, you know, it's become such a phenomenon now that, People use the word meetup like we use Kleenex. It's it's become a generic term. Let's do a meetup. That's right. You know, it's just that's automatically quick, slipped in. Exactly. And that's how quick, that's one of the other things about the Internet. Everything is happening at warp speed. So, you know, when you write a book about the Internet today, you know that a year from now, things are going to be different. It's a little bit, you know, disconcerting to people and... But I think that there are still basic, that's why I say, there are still basic things that are happening that the Internet is abetting. And most of it is with the consequential stranger. It's not, it hasn't changed, you know, it's changed our, our intimate relationships to some degree because we can always get in touch with our loved ones. But the thing that has changed the most, I think, is, is, is this whole peripheral territory, giving us much more people, much easier access and even ways of checking up on them, of, you know, is this person legitimate or not? And I have to say that, and I wrote, uh, dedicated a whole chapter to the book, not all consequential strangers are good. I mean, we are, we can be stuck with an annoying coworker, a, a nosy neighbor. There are people, there are some consequential strangers. Most of them we can walk away from. You don't, you don't like your tennis partner or he's, you're part of a golf foursome and one of the guys is really annoying. You don't have to play with him anymore. So most consequential strangers, you, you take your toys and you go home. But there are some that we're stuck with. And I personally think that they're put in our lives to learn lessons. It's kind of a spiritual approach to it. But we can't forget that not all people are terrific. Consequential strangers, by definition, you know, cut a, a wide swath of people. Yet most of them are pretty positive. You know, that's true because consequential can go either way. Yeah, Julio Diaz is one of the consequential strangers that made a difference recently. I don't know if you have met him yet on NPR, but uh, there was no, a I story that, that was posted that talked about how 
he was mugged getting off the huh. subway. Right. And he saw this young teenager show him a knife and say, give me your wallet. And he says, here you go. It was a cold night. And he says, hey, you forgot something. If you're going out and you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, you probably need my coat too. Oh, wow. And the young kid was just astonished. And it turns out that Julio was a social worker. And uh-huh. he said, you know, he really felt for the guy. And he said, listen, really what you want isn't food, isn't money, but you really need food. Come with me to the diner. And they sat at the diner. And, you know, he was able to have an impact on this young boy's life. You really need some guidance. And, and the boy was open to it because he was a consequential stranger in his life. Absolutely. And you know, those, those are the kind of stories I love to hear. Uh, and, and while I was writing the book, I can't tell you, I mean, many of them are in the book, but I can't tell you how many I just didn't have room for in the book. They're such great stories. And, it, you know, I think part of it is just in this fast world is slowing down to open your heart a little bit. And the fact that he did that, even uh, was able to do that even as he was threatened by this kid, says a lot about him as a person. And, you know, I honestly think, and I don't mean to sound like Pollyanna, I think if more people did that and just put forth, you know, the good vibe instead of the bad one, I think it would be the world would be a better place. See, I think that people are doing that all the time in so many places. It's a matter of where we focus. Right. That's right. And seeing it, and seeing it, and, and telling, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I love the book, Consequential Strangers, is it is reassuring. It is, it is say, you know, these are people that, that, when people reach out, and it's genuine. Remember I used that word before about social media. Being real is, is the most important thing, and people know that. So this kid, in the middle, he was probably petrified himself. But he got that this guy was really being real with him and caring. And so I think that's probably what, you know, coaxed him into the diner. Yeah, Julio says that they were in the diner and all the people would come up and say hi to him. And the kid's like, do you own this place? And Julio says, no, I just eat here a lot. And the kid says, well, you're nice even to the dishwasher. And Julio says to him, didn't anyone ever teach you that the right way to treat people is to be nice to everyone? Right. And it, it... turns out that the kid gave him his wallet back, and Julio says, there's something else I want from you. I want your knife. And the kid gave it to him, and there's more to the story, but I just think that that was a really powerful transaction that took place because they operated under the, the principles that you write about in Consequential Strangers. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I love that story. I'm going to actually look it up after we get off <laughs> when we finish this. No, it's terrific. It's a terrific, and it's a great, great example of that. And, um, you know, you talk about a diner. A diner is a wonderful place for consequential strangers. And I write in the book about a woman who is a widower whose husband died after 35 years of marriage. And she said she she just couldn't get out of her apartment after he died because they had done everything together. And she finally said, if I don't get out of my apartment, I think I'm going to become mentally ill. She she knew that she was slipping into, she wasn't eating. So she went back to a diner that she and her husband had had frequented. And also, while he was sick, she used to stop off there and pick up a piece of pie for him, and they'd often not charge her because they knew he was in the hospital. And she walked in, and she stood nervously, and the, the maitre d' knew her, who was the owner. 
And he uh, and she said, no, I'm just a one. I'll sit at the counter. And she said, just a one? You don't have to sit at the counter. I'm going to give you a table. He proceeded to sit her at the table. She said she was so nervous. She ordered. She started, you know, trying to eat, and she was having a lot of trouble. And one by one, he brought people over to her table who were regulars at the diner. And there were people who had some were widowers, some were divorcees, not to fix her up, but just to show her there's other people that are ones. And she ended up going to that diner every day, at least a year, morning and night. That's where she ate all of her meals. And she had a whole life there, all the regulars. So it was such a wonderful story. It really saved her life. And when she became open to that, she really became open to the community that was there all along. How has writing this book changed your life? Dramatically, actually. I mean, as I said, I I was always a kind of person, you know, when I was in college, I was the social chairman of my uh, sorority. So I'm I'm a fairly social person. I've always, I mean, I became a journalist because I love listening to people's stories. But after writing this, and I I started living it, I, I had occasion to go to Paris and spend large chunks of time there. And I wasn't totally, I know this sounds strange, but I wasn't totally happy about it. But I knew, though, because of the book, that I had to have consequential strangers there, which, of course, was difficult because I speak very bad French. So I decided I would revisit this idea of my acquaintanceship campaign, and I would do the same thing in Paris. And through walking my dog and taking Pilates classes, I've got now a group of consequential strangers there, so much so that I... I gave a cocktail party for them after one trip was about to end. And I was able to invite 25 people. And I have to tell you, I was a little nervous. I said, oh, my God, you know, I really don't know these people that well. It was one of the most fun parties I've ever given. And for for the people as well, because they enjoyed meeting other new people. And someone explained to me that when you're an expat, and I actually did a talk in uh, Paris to the expat community, they really related to the idea of consequential strangers because you need to find people, again, that stand on some common ground. It could be the common ground is that you both speak English or that you both have dogs or you both like to take yoga classes. But that's enough to go to coffee, to stand around in the, in the park with your dog and have a, you know a 20-minute conversation and go home. And it really changed my idea about the city, and um, and I see, I saw how amazing it was, and how how true everything was that I wrote. That it gave me information about Paris I never would have had. You know, I got to know the ins and outs, which you can't do unless you know consequential strangers. Well, Melinda, um, you've taken the idea of consequential strangers and really made it vivid for us. You've given you. us some great examples from everything from corporations like Procter & Gamble and Apple Computer, right down to personal stories. You've shared with us the idea of how to create your own deliberate, conscious, acquaintanceship campaign. And you've talked to us about how it's impacted the Internet and the Internet's influenced people to be able to reach out and create their own consequential stranger relationships. I want to thank you so much for sharing today on my quest for the best. Thank you so much for having me. And I just wanted to say one thing that I that we changed the subtitle and it says everything. They are people that are surprised at how much power they have in your life. But we changed the subtitle to 
in the paperback to turning everyday encounters into life-changing moments. And that's really what they do. So I appreciate that you uh, gave me a platform to talk about this. Thank you so much.